We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Yasha Monk. The writer and academic discusses his recent book about how diverse societies can better get along. Yasha Monk is an associate professor of the practice of international affairs at the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. He's also contributing editor at The Atlantic magazine and senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's known for his coverage and smart analysis on the rise of populism and the crisis in liberal democracy that has consumed public discourse in recent years. Yasha's latest book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. He joined our host, BBC journalist and broadcaster, Riddle Shah, to talk about it. It is particularly compelling to be having a conversation about democracy right now. Ukrainians, obviously, are fighting for their right to sovereignty and democracy. And the French election actually illustrates the fragility of democracy and what happens when people, societies become polarised. Welcome, Yasha. Let's begin with... Why the great experiment? Yeah, so the name has a kind of backstory. Um, three or four years ago, I was in Germany promoting my last book, The People versus Democracy, which warned about the threat that authoritarian populists pose 
to democracies around the world. Um, and I was I went on Tagesthemen, in one of the big uh, news shows in Germany. Uh, I was a little bit nervous because I sort of tend to prefer speaking in English nowadays to German. Uh, but, you know, the presenter asked me a very straightforward question. Uh, what are the causes of this rise of populism? And I said, look, um, it's to do with economic stagnation of living standards for ordinary citizens. It's to do with the rise of the Internet and of social media and the way that that allows extremists to have a bigger voice in our politics. Uh, but it's also to do with the fact that we're now in the middle of a great experiment, that of turning mono-ethnic, monocultural societies into multi-ethnic ones. That's going to create some very real problems, but I think we'll always we'll also succeed in the end. And so I got off the interview, you know, I got a phone call from my mom, who normally hates every interview I do, and she said, you did great, you know, and I thought, okay, great, I'll go to sleep. I jumped on a plane the next morning back to the United States, wasn't thinking about the interview, switched on my phone, and there was just, you know, 50, 100 notifications, uh, mostly denouncing me. There was articles written up on far-right websites in Germany and the Daily Stormer, the neo-Nazi website in, in the United States. Um, and they all claimed that I had um, admitted some great conspiracy, uh, that I'd admitted that I and Angela Merkel were in cahoots uh, to play an experiment on the German people and to replace the German people. And that was, of course, a misunderstanding of this phrase that I used spontaneously in that moment. They thought when I talked about an experiment, I sort of meant, you know, the chemistry teacher who comes in when kids are 15 or 16 and, uh, you know, puts one kind of liquid into the other and there's a little explosion. And then he explains this chemical process. He, of course, knew exactly what was going to happen and did it deliberately. Um, but uh, there's a different meaning of experiment. And that's what I had in mind. And that really does describe where we are today. And that is that we're building these uh, ethnically and religiously uh, diverse societies. Britain is much more ethnically and religiously diverse than it was 50 years ago. Uh, uh, and for the first time in history, we're trying to really treat everybody as equals. So in a country like the United States, where I am at the moment, uh, you know, American society was always very diverse, but it also used to have a very, very clear ethnic and religious hierarchy. And so for the first time, we're trying to treat everybody equally. There's no historical precedent for this attempt of having these deeply ethnically, religiously diverse democracies and actually treating people equally. Um, and so that's what makes it an experiment. That's what makes it an unprecedented situation. No precedent then for this situation. What are the particular problems that it throws up? Why can't we get along, essentially? Yeah, so one of the things I noticed in talking about this topic is that um, often there's a kind of easy optimism that turns into pessimism. There's a sort of, look, I mean, how hard can this be, right? Like, why shouldn't we be able to get along? Why should we hate our neighbors just because they're from, uh, you know, they have origins in a different country or they have a different skin color or they have a different religion? It shouldn't be so hard not to be a bigot. It shouldn't be so hard not to be a racist, right? Uh, but that then easily turns into pessimism because when you look at the state of our society and there obviously are injustices, there obviously are problems, and that makes it tempting to say there's something uniquely wrong with us and we should fear for our future. Uh, my book starts with the opposite uh, assumption. It starts with recognition but there's all kinds of mechanisms that make it really hard to build these deeply diverse democracies. So one comes from group psychology. Um, I tell the story of Henry Teufel in the book. Teufel uh, uh, barely survived World War II. Most of his family was killed in the Holocaust. And he started to ask himself, uh, you know, what makes groups uh, so powerful? What makes them capable of uh, this terrible outgroup discrimination? And so he was a university professor in Bristol. And he got a bunch of you know, nice kids uh, from the suburbs of Bristol into the lab. 
and he showed them a sheet of paper with about 150 dots on it. And he said, you know, have a guess uh, how many uh, dots there are. And some said, I don't know, 120, 130. Some said 170, 180. And then he said, okay, I'll split you into a group of overestimators and a group of underestimators. Now, why did he do that? His purpose was to create groups that are so silly, that are so pointless, that the members wouldn't discriminate against each other. And then he thought he could add features to this group to figure out when is the threshold, where is the threshold, when do they start to treat each other badly. But he failed, because it turns out that these nice kids in Bristol who had all kinds of similarities, the moment they were put into a group of underestimators and asked to play a game against the overestimators, they really discriminated against the overestimators. And the same the other way Round. And I've done this with my kids, right? So my students, I, I teach on an incredibly diverse campus. Only about 20% of the campus is white now. They're some of the most uh, diverse and tolerant students uh, anywhere in the world. They pride themselves on their tolerance. I have them debate whether a hot dog is a sandwich. And it turns out that the students who think that a hot dog is a sandwich start to discriminate in exactly the ways that Henry Teifel described against the students who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich. So one of the problems we face is that this instinct to form groups and to favor the members of outsiders is a universal human characteristic and it's very easy to trigger. But, but just as it can be divisive, and that example, Teifel's work, was arresting and shocking. It stays with you. Uh, but just as we're groupish, we divide, can't that be an advantage in democracy? Isn't that a way of organizing democracy? So we see historically that it's responsible in the real world when you're not talking about silly things like overestimators or hot dogs, um, uh, that it's motivated some of the worst crimes in human history. Um, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's fights about politics or other things that don't pit different identity groups against each other, and those can be very cruel and terrible as well. But most of the worst crimes in human history um, pitted one ethnic or religious or national or racial group uh, against another. Uh, it has historically driven uh, wars, civil wars, um, genocides, forms of ethnic cleansing. Um, but you're right, uh, the way we draw those kind of boundaries uh, is malleable. It changes depending on the circumstance. And so whether or not we are able to keep the peace really depends on the kind of political institutions we build, the kind of identity we build, uh, and the context. May, may I tell another story? Of course. I love the stories. Stories are great. Um, you know, this is the main difference between writing in England and the United States. I grew up in Germany and you're not supposed to have any stories. Now, people in Germany are <laughs> surprised that my books have stories. Like, of course, that's how you communicate. That's how I'm you understand the world. I love stories. So there's two, two tribes in Southeastern Africa, the, the Chawas and the Tumbukas. And somebody went to study them to try and understand intergroup conflict. And so he went to a Chawa village in, Mal in Malawi. And he said, what do you think about Tumbukas? And they had all of these terrible prejudices against Tumbukas. They said, look, the Tumbukas, you know, the, the, the dances they're doing at weddings and other rituals are all wrong. You know, the dances are really weird. And, you know, newlywed couples, they really should live with a, with a, with a groom's family, obviously, but they live with a bride's family. What are they thinking? This is really odd. And so he said, well, would you ever marry somebody from that group? Or could you imagine voting for one of the political candidates? No, 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 of course not. Right? And he went to a Tumbuka village. And it turned out they had exactly the same prejudices in reverse, right? Their dances are wrong, ours are the right ones. And, you know, they go to live with a groom's family. That's weird. They should live with a bride's family, right? And no, I wouldn't vote for one of them. No, I wouldn't marry one of them. So it would have been really tempting 
to uh, come to the conclusion that so many journalists came to in, during the time of war in Yugoslavia. You know, these people just have these ancient hatreds, these primordial hatreds. They've always hated each other, they're always going to hate each other, nothing to be done. But instead, this researcher went across the border from Malawi to Zambia, one of those typical colonial borders drawn, uh, you know, on a map by somebody who's probably never been to Africa. Um, so I read the arbitrary border, and it's only like 10 miles apart, right? And suddenly, the first Chawa village she goes to, they're very aware of the same cultural differences. They are two because they're different in these ways. But you know what? I like them. I trust them. I would marry one of them, potentially, if I met the right person. I'd vote for one of the political candidates. And the same in Timbuka villages in Zambia. So what explains this? Why are Chawas and Timbuka's enemies in Malawi and they're friendly to each other in, in Zambia? The answer is politics. It turns out that in uh, Malawi, uh, these two groups, they're a very small country, so these two groups are a majority of the population between them, and they compete with each other for power. In Zambia, it's a much bigger country. Chawas and Timbuka's are a much smaller share of the population, and so they're actually allies against tribes in the west of Zambia, which are even more different, right? Um, and this shows that our ability to sustain cooperation really depends on the context. It depends on our political institutions. It depends on the identities we, we cultivate. And when we get that right, we can avoid conflict. We can uh, foster cooperation, even among groups that have historically been very hostile to each other. So there are innate dangers in the way we're living now. According to you, we are these diverse societies. I'm going to throw in the example of the French election, which I, I raised earlier. When you look at that, then, in the context of, of this book, do you see the, the, a democracy that is cracked, that is ready to fail, then, by your standards? Um, no. I mean, so I, I worry very much about French politics, and I worry about the rise of populists from Donald Trump in the United States, who may well... Uh, become the 47th as well as the 45th president. Mm -hmm. uh, he may well come back in, in, in 2024. Uh, to obviously Marine Le Pen. I mean, if you go back to 2002, uh, her father, Jean-Marie, was already in the second round, but he got 17.8% of the vote in the second round of the election. Um, Marine herself, five years ago, got about 34%. And now, uh, this Sunday, she got something like 41%. So we're seeing this upward trend, and that's very concerning. But I think one of the reasons for that is actually a second theme of my book, which is that if you start with this pessimism, if you start with a recognition of how difficult it is, you can actually appreciate some of the progress that has been happening in the last decades and some of the ways in which our societies in Britain, in the United States, but also in France have, have really improved. And what strikes me about our public conversation about these topics is that it's a debate between different kinds of pessimists. So there's one kind of pessimist in France that says all of these immigrants coming in, uh, they're somehow inferior, they're either culturally or perhaps even genetically inferior. Uh, they don't want to integrate, they're not succeeding. Uh, you know, they're all poor, they're not educated, you know, all of the kind of stuff we know from the far right. Now, a lot of my friends and acquaintances in Paris, and, and by the way, a lot of my friends and acquaintances in London, New York, and other places around the world, uh, they disagree rightly with that kind of attribution of blame. But they actually echo a similar pessimism they say, you know what, it's true that immigrants aren't succeeding. It's true that they're excluded. It's true that they're really poor. It's just the reason for that is our own uh, discrimination, our own injustice, uh, the problems in our society. So the description is right, it's just that we are to blame. Um, well, for this book, I, I looked with an open mind at the best studies and statistics I could find, and I found a much more positive picture. What actually happens is that the first generation 
often struggles, right? People who come in from poorer countries who haven't had the same educational opportunities, who didn't grow up with a language, not all of them, obviously, but most of them, they often don't fully learn the language. They often do remain quite poor and excluded. But when you look at their children and their grandchildren, they have enormous social mobility. And they actually have higher upward mobility than the children or grandchildren of similarly situated uh, so-called native-born children. Um, and that's true in, in France and in, in Britain and in the United States. And I think one of the reasons why Le Pen was so successful is that uh, when there's this, this competition of different pessimistic narratives, voters choose to blame the outsider rather than themselves. And what we need is a more realistic vision of the challenges, the difficulties, but also the progress that we've made. I mean, two things in a way that are interesting about that, though, in France, of course, you've got not just the far right, but also the far left, this disillusion with mainstream politics. But but looking at it more broadly, if you think about the politics that we've seen in the United States, the United Kingdom, across Europe, uh, we've seen culture wars, we've seen people form tribes. And many of those people on the left of those culture wars would argue that actually they liberal democracy has failed them. It hasn't answered their their needs, their their criticisms. And it's only by forming a group and standing up for their rights that perhaps people who have power have begun to listen. Uh, would you accept that, that, that it's only by being in a group and labelling yourself to some extent that you're heard? Uh, well, so a couple of things. The first is that uh, I think uh, groupishness is, is a fundamental fact of, of, of human nature, right? And so uh, I certainly think that we will always have groups in our society. Uh, we'll certainly have religious groups in our society. Uh, we'll have cultural groups organized around cultural origin to a significant extent. And to some extent, we might also have ethnic groups. Uh, and that's something that we should accept. That's, that's fine. It's also one of the beautiful things about our country. It's one of the things that makes uh, Britain today a very dynamic and interesting place. Uh, it's one of the things I appreciate about Britain and about the States and France and other places uh, around the world. So, so so that is not a concern. I think the question for us, whether well, we're also at the same time going to be able to sustain real solidarity uh, between those uh, different groups and whether we're going to be able as individuals to chart our own course for life, whether we are going to end up with a deeply fragmented society in Lebanon where it's very hard for members of different groups to marry each other, very hard for them to strike out friendships with each other, to be business partners, uh, or whether we have a kind of society where you can choose to stay mostly within your own cultural or ethnic or religious group, but you can also choose to um, leave your own community, where you can choose to stay as part of a community and have friends and business partners and romantic partners who are members of different communities. So we need to create uh, that kind of vibrant society. And one of the things that I find striking here is that the you know, it's always hard to generalize about the media. And I'm a member of the media, you're a member of the media. So, you know, I, I'm aware that I'm not trying to simplify here. But often the narrative you get in the mainstream media is much more pessimistic than members of minority groups themselves are. So in the United States, for example, uh, when you listen to, uh, you know, CNN and read the New York Times, you get the impression that the state of black America is disastrous and that uh, most African-Americans are deeply pessimistic about the future of their country. And again, in a weird way, that's echoed by Donald Trump, who said in 2016 to black voters, uh, you know, your schools are terrible, your neighborhoods are dangerous, you don't have any jobs, vote for me, what the hell do you have to lose? Well, when you actually look at the state of black America, there are obvious 
problems which come from the centuries of injustice that African-Americans have suffered, of slavery and Jim Crow and all of those other indignities. And that obviously continues to uh, lead to real disadvantage, especially among a portion of the black population. But the median African-American today um, lives in a reasonably affluent suburb, um, uh, has a white-collar job, has gone below the age of 40 to college or university for a number of years, um, uh, and is more optimistic about the future of a country, even believes more in this strange phrase of the American dream than the average white American. So, uh, you know, yes, it's perfectly fine for people to fight for the interest of interest group politics. We'll always have groups. But let's actually look at how people feel rather than uh, uh, sort of, you know, how media platforms portray it, because those two things are not always the same thing. So you're advocating optimism. We'll, we'll poke at that a bit more. I do want to remind people that they can ask questions. I'm going to ask for a little while longer, but but you will have your chance to join in. Click on the ask question button under the video screen and press send. And you can also tweet along using, using the hashtag IQ2. So, OK, so you're saying there is plenty to be optimistic about, even within this groupish world that we live in, that the human impetus to be groupish. When you think about then um, the state of how we build a successful society, Francis Fukuyama, I think in, in his new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, argues that a strong sense of national identity is actually a vital ingredient to having a successful democratic liberal state. Where does that sit then? Because that's another kind of groupishness. And we all know where nationalism can be. Yeah, look, for me, um, one way of thinking about this is sort of where do you want to anchor uh, identity? Is it in the group, in the, in the ethnic group, in the religious group, and so on? Is it at the level of the nation, you know, as, as Britons, as Americans? Or is it as, as cosmopolitans, as people who care about everybody in the world equally? Um, and I actually think that it's a mistake in some ways to try and make those uh, identities compete against each other. I certainly think we should have concern to people everywhere in the world. If there's uh, starvation or a terrible earthquake somewhere far away in the world, uh, I think we should have concern for it. We should donate money. We should have our government help. We should ensure that people don't die needlessly in cruel deaths. But I don't think we're ever going to be able to care about everybody in the world equally. We'll always have special affections for our own town, our own community, our own country, and that's fine. Uh, we will, as I said earlier, always be groupish. We will always say, you know, I'm Christian or I'm Jewish or I'm Hindu or I'm Muslim, and that's important to me. Um, you know, I have origins in uh, the Caribbean or I have origins in Latin America or I have origins in uh, South Asia, and that's something that I want to pass on to my children. All of that is fine. But I do think we also need a national level. We also need to say, the main scheme of cooperation we still have is at the national level. That's where we sustain our welfare state. That's where we sustain um, our NHS in, in Britain and our health system in other countries. Uh, uh, and we, in order for that to work, we have to have a sense that we actually share something at that level. And we're seeing today in Ukraine what a powerful motivator that can be. Millions of people who are voluntarily, that's not as conscription, uh, risking their lives in order to defend their country against this terrible invasion by an autocrat. So uh, for me, nationalism is this, or patriotism, is this half-domesticated beast, which can always be dangerous, which can run wild and destroy a lot of things when we let the worst kind of people own it, but which we always have to struggle to make 
useful and productive. Let's think a little bit about more than how democracy functions in terms of of voting. There is in many systems a kind of winner-takes-all approach. To what extent then does that feed populism, the kind of the worst aspects of divisiveness that, that puts us into these groups that undermines the vision that you have? Is it the system itself that's problematic? Um, so I certainly worry about the way in which the electoral system, both of the United Kingdom and of the United States, uh, encourages two political parties, at least within geographic regions, um, uh, and in which that makes it harder to criticize your own side when it goes wrong, uh, the way in which it makes it uh, easier to think that society is just split into these two deeply mutually hostile blocks, um, that is very concerning. Um, at the same time, I notice something, which is that when I'm in Britain or the States, everybody complains about first past the post um, and says, if only we had PR, perhaps things would work better. And I think there's some reasons why PR might be a little bit better. But then when I go to Italy or Israel or uh, all kinds of countries that have systems of proportional representation, people say, well, you know what? Our system is not working. Shouldn't we get first past the post? So I think in the end, the solutions to our problems have to be structural. They have to be to make sure that people feel real economic growth, uh, that they have optimism about the personal future, uh, and they have to be cultural. They have to be building a common narrative in which we acknowledge our historical sins, in which we acknowledge injustices that persist in society, but in which we also build a vision of a society in which we have a lot of things in common and uh, a vision of a society that most people would actually want to live in. And if we have that to oppose to the Marine Le Pen's of the world, to the Donald Trump's of the world, then I think we can win the debate whether we have a first pass post system or a proportional representation system or whatever else our institutions might look like. No Bullshit Leadership, brought to you by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Havas Creative, is back for a new season. In this straight-talking podcast, Chris Hurst, global CEO of Havas Creative, is joined each week by a leader from the world of business, sport, politics or culture. In the latest episode, out now, Chris spoke to the editor of the Financial Times, Rula Kalaf, about becoming editor at the beginning of the pandemic, her day-to-day life as a leader and her encounter with Jordan Belfort, better known as the Wolf of Wall Street. Search No Bullshit Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I was also intrigued that you're quite dismissive of this idea of the great replacement theory, um, which has been discussed at length in France, this idea that uh, minority communities will replace majority communities. Just just talk about that a little bit more, because you, you're very interesting on the way uh, the US census perhaps has been misused. Uh, yeah, so there's this idea in the United States, you know, it's, it's such a divided country. I mean, Britain feels very divided sometimes, but there's still lots of people that... Um, you know, people who vote Labour, people who vote for Tories, people who think of themselves as a left wing, people who think of themselves as a right wing agree on. It's actually still a much more consensual society than, than America. Uh, you know, America is so much more deeply divided, uh, even more deeply divided. Um, but what I note in the United States is that, that, that there's one idea that Democrats and Republicans, that liberals and conservatives uh, can agree on. Uh, and this is the idea of a rising demographic majority for Democrats and the idea uh, that America will, by 2045 or thereabouts, be majority-minority. And I actually think that both of those ideas are not just deeply dystopian, uh, but also empirically wrong. So the one thing we can all agree on is the one thing we shouldn't actually agree on, but we should all not believe. So l l let me explain this a little bit, especially to a British audience, which may be less familiar with the details of this. Um, so the idea here is that at the moment, which is true, uh, most white Americans vote for the Republican Party, uh, and most non-white Americans vote for the Democratic Party. Um, and the share of uh, uh, the non-white population is, is growing. Uh, in fact, if you abide by the definitions of the United States Census Bureau, which basically uses the one-drop rule for all groups, uh, including Hispanics. So if you count up everybody who by 2045 will be, you know, at least a quarter or an eighth uh, black or a quarter or an eighth Asian American and everybody who's, you know, has some kind of connection to a Spanish or Portuguese speaking country, including Spain and Portugal, by the way, um, then the uh, American population will be majority non-white by 2045. And so there's this idea uh, which uh, originated among Democrats that, hey, we just have to wait for those demographic transformations to happen and then we're going to have a majority. We're going to keep winning every election. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why outlets like NPR and the New York Times said that Donald Trump could not possibly win in 2016, because they looked at those demographic changes and said, we have it in the back. Now, it also drives a deep demographic panic on the right and the far right. This is what drives people like Michael Anton, who was a senior advisor in Trump's White House, to say that, I quote, the ceaseless importation of third world foreigners, end quote, is going to destroy the republic and make it impossible for Republicans to, to win elections. Um, but it's wrong. 
And there's a few simple ways we can see that it's wrong. Um, in 1965, Irish Americans overwhelmingly voted for the Democratic Party. Today, they're one of the more reliable voting blocs for the Republican Party. Um, in 2020, Donald Trump was only competitive in the presidential elections because he significantly increased the share of the vote among every non-white voter group, among African-Americans, among Asian-Americans, and especially among Latinos. And Joe Biden is the legitimately elected 46th president of the United States because he got a lot more white votes than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. So this idea that Democrats can just wait for the demographic dividend to fall into the lap is wrong and it's dangerous and it's going to get Donald Trump reelected in 2024 if we're not careful. But the stakes are actually even bigger than that because, uh, you know, this idea that Americans are fundamentally divided into whites and people of color uh, is a really dangerous way of thinking about the way our society works. Um, uh, and it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's how everybody talks about it. That's how people might start to think about it. Um, but that's not how people think of themselves today. There's deep divisions within the African-American population between the descendants of slaves and uh, more recent immigrants from Kenya and Nigeria. Um, the place of Asian-Americans, which other than different from British Asians, British Asians primarily tends to refer to people from the Indian subcontinent. Um, Asian-Americans primarily tends to... Uh, 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 talk about people from East Asia, for it includes people from the Indian subcontinent, uh, don't necessarily see themselves as naturally aligned with African-Americans rather than whites. It's a much more complicated belonging. A lot of Latinos think of themselves as white. There was recently a study which has rightly been treated with a little bit of suspicion because it's a weird thing to do, where uh, Latinos were given a chart with 10 different hands with sort of colored from white to black, essentially, or from, from very light to very dark, now to place themselves on it. And the most common answer was the second most white one. So actually, a lot of Latinos think of themselves as white. So this whole idea that America can be understood as this easy clash between whites and people of color is, is a real distortion of reality. And personally, I have stopped using the term people of color other than in quoting people or when talking about the discourse because I find it so misleading, because I find it so strange to think, for example, that somebody who, say, has, uh, you know, Belgian aristocratic ancestors on one side of the family and, you know, Brahmin ancestors from India on the other side of the family um, uh, and grows up in the United States they might really experience some racism because of the color of their skin, but the idea that they naturally fall into the same category as somebody all of whose ancestors were enslaved for centuries is just a very odd thing, an odd way of thinking about reality, and we should, we should question those categories. We've talked a lot about the problems, and you've alluded to a sunny upland where all these people could come together and could work together. What does that look like? Where are the solutions? It's quite easy to do the analysis. As I think you yourself point out in the book, much harder to come up with a way to actually make it work. Yes, yeah, so one of the little contributions I'm proud of in this book is uh, uh, exportable to all kinds of other contexts. It's what I call the chapter 10 problem, right? So I'm sure that, <laughs> you know, with, all, like with all due respect to the wonderful, <laughs> wonderful people that you have at Intelligence Squared uh, coming on as guests, um, uh, a lot of the time, they're going to spend nine chapters of the books talking about some deep problem in the world um, uh, and often be very convincing about how urgent a problem it is and how deep it goes. And then we'll have a 10th chapter where we say, I came up with the solutions. Look at me, right? 
Um, and either that is going to be, oh, we just have to change everything and then this will be fixed. And you think, well, perhaps if we changed everything, it would fix this problem. But it would also create three other problems. And by the way, we're never going to change everything anyway. Or they say, well, here's these three little fixes. We say, well, perhaps we'll manage to get two of them passed. But even if we do, it's not going to make much of a problem, difference, right? So that's the chapter 10 problem. I face the chapter 10 problem. Everybody faces the chapter 10 problem. But, but my solution to it is actually to point to the ways in which our society uh, has been improving over the last decades and the way in which we can build on some of that progress in the coming decades. Um, and the way in which, despite the fact that we are doing a historically unique experiment, something that's unprecedented, we have certain uh, guardrails that can guide us, uh, that the basic principles of our constitutional democracies uh, can actually tell us uh, how to live. That the basic principles of philosophical liberalism can explain to us how uh, minority groups can have real freedoms and rights, uh, can be safe from the oppression of a state and safe from the tyranny of a majority, but in which we as individuals can also be free from the pressures of our own groups, in which the state can help to ensure that our own um, parents and aunties and uncles and priests and imams and rabbis don't tell us uh, how we need to live. So uh, we have real progress. We have the basic uh, uh, political institutions in place. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of policies we can we can adopt to ensure that we have real economic progress for average citizens, which helps because it's much easier to be optimistic about the future when you're experiencing those improvements. And then when your neighbor comes in from a different country and is doing great too, you can congratulate them. If you have a feeling that your life is not getting better and that you've been hard done by, that the life is, life is unfair to you, and suddenly this neighbor from a different country comes in and they have a nicer car than you or a bigger house than you, it's much easier to say, how do they deserve this, right? Um, so we need economic growth. We need a real welfare state, which ensures that if you get fired from your job or um, something similar, you, you still have a decent life. Um, we need inclusive political institutions that are actually responsive to, to what people want. So there's all kinds of suggestions but ultimately, I'm not claiming I'm going to fix it with my ideas. It is by building on the progress of the last decades that we can continue to, to hold the shop together. I mean, you talk about people inhabiting a space which you, you compare to a park, a, a place where everyone has a, a space to, to be, to play, to be who they want to be. But I wonder if you underestimate some of the anger that people feel, the sort of anger that we saw exploding in, in Black Lives Matter, for instance, and that actually we're at a point where people don't trust democracy or the state to represent them, to, to actually fulfill the kind of vision that you've just described. And it's going to be much harder to, to build, rebuild trust for whatever reason. There are many groups that feel they haven't been heard. And why should they, if you like, put their identity in this bigger pot, in this democratic situation, which hasn't delivered for them, in their view, for a long time? Uh, look, it is hard. Um, uh, it's hard on, on, on all sides. Every group has their fears and and many groups have have uh, uh, you know rightful anger at the disadvantage and at the discrimination they they experience. But I really uh, am struck by the divide here between the media narrative and what the statistics show. Um, I'm really struck by the difference between what this sounds like listening with respect to the BBC and what you see in the polls. Uh, immigrants to Britain uh, are more patriotic than the average native-born Brit. Uh, they are proud to be British and they uh, are proud of the political institutions uh, of the United Kingdom. They also have 
their concerns about the discrimination they suffer, which is real. They also have many things they want to change in the country, and uh, that's wonderful and perfectly fine. Um, but it just isn't true uh, that they have, on average, that kind of uh, deep distrust. Um, and so I think we need to recognize the problems, we need to recognize the challenges, uh, but we shouldn't talk ourselves into a portrayal of a situation um, in which uh, we're lacking uh, this kind of commonality. One of the things I'm arguing for, we talked pre previously about patriotism a little bit. Perhaps let me tell you a little bit about my conception of patriotism. Um, because, uh, of course, it depends ultimately on what kind of patriotism we adopt. Uh, there's an ethnic nationalism which says that, uh, you know, the only true Britain or the only true German or the only true American is one uh, who is a member of a majority group, is one whose grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were already in the country. That's now... It's not only morally pernicious uh, and excludes people in morally unjustifiable ways. It's a real minority conception. If you go back 40 or 50 years, most people said that to be truly British, to be truly German, uh, you have to have been born in the country. You have to share that ethnicity. That is no longer the case. That is now quite clearly a minority opinion um, in all of these uh, countries. Um, now, the second kind of conception, which uh, people who argue for some patriotism alongside those other identities often go to, is a kind of uh, civic patriotism, right? Is to say, what makes us British, for example, is uh, uh, British values, um, is the values of the unwritten constitution, is the rights uh, of, of English people, it's perhaps monarchy to some extent. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, I, I do think that uh, having a shared set of values is an important thing which allows uh, that collective identity to be productive, to be positive. Um, uh, it is what makes some of the brave people protesting the war in Russia today true patriots because they're saying not in our name, not in the name of our nation. That's not what our nation should stand for. That's one of the reasons why a protest against the injustices in your own country can be the most truly patriotic act. But I don't think that civic patriotism is enough because most people just don't care that much about politics. When most people say that they love Britain or they feel British uh, or American or German, they're not thinking about uh, uh, that abstract level. I think what most of them are thinking about uh, is everyday culture. Uh, what they're talking about is, is their hometown, is the cities and the landscapes of the country, the sights and sounds and smells, uh, the sort of cultural scripts, the way we interact with each other. Um, uh, pop culture references, celebrities, TikTok stars. Um, you know, some of this can be silly. Um, uh, but that, I think, actually bears the mark of uh, a forward-looking dynamic and in a very naturally way, uh, diverse culture. And I know Britain pretty well. I'm not from Britain, but I've spent many years in Britain. And I think that's something that Britain has. And it's something that the vast majority of uh, Britain's who are parts of ethnic minorities, who, are, uh, who have origins outside of the country, share. Um, uh, and, and we should actually be, be, proud, be proud of that. We should be glad about that. We should recognize that that's a real asset. Well, on that optimistic note, I am going to pause and take some questions from uh, people who are watching and listening. Uh, and do remember, do you can put your questions in, simply type in to the button, the type, push the button that says question, type in your question and press send. Uh, let's begin with René de Paula from Brazil, Sao Paulo in Brazil, who says, what if humans have a natural limitation 
in terms of brain processing or emotion processing that makes it impossible to tolerate certain levels of diversity? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I get that fear, um, uh, but I think we see that uh, uh, you know, the nature of identity is just really malleable across different contexts. I think what's what's often what makes me more worried is that there's always sort of some outsider that's needed, right? The one thing that's going to unite the human race is if we have a credible threat of alien invasion. Um, you know, then we might say, well, we're all humans and we share everything. Uh, but we can only recognize that because there's suddenly this scary alien coming in, right? Um, so I do worry that there's always going to be some level of temptation of finding splits in one way or another. Uh, but the level at which the split happens uh, really depends on on context, um, right? I mean, divisions that now don't seem all of that significant have historically been incredibly motivating. Um, Catholics and Protestants fought each other in brutal ways. And of course, in Northern Ireland, we still have a very significant conflict between those groups. In a place like the United States, uh, that seems like a very quaint conflict um, because uh, people think mostly in terms of racial categories and the supposed sort of uh, way in which the country is really defined by the fight between whites and people of color, for example. Um, and so I think that uh, uh, there's always a way of subsuming uh, uh, different identities under a shared identity if we do the right thing. The only worry is just but that is then going to provoke the next conflict at one higher level up of identity. And that's something we always have to manage and always have to look out for. Coming back to the title of the book, Leila asks, The Great Experiment. You explained rather articulately how that kind of came about. But is there an implication, uh, she says, isn't this a majority-centred point of view? The implication being that your perspective, if you like, is from the middle. No, I don't think so, because I think it's an experiment that that we're all members of, Um uh, we're all living in these societies together. Uh, and in fact, you know, my perspective, this is one of the things that I really want to emphasize in the book, that people tend to superimpose their particular identity categories on other countries. Um, and so they think that, the, you know, the only real conflict are between the identity groups that are in conflict in their country. And so they they often misunderstand other countries. Now, I have a strange experience of having grown up as the you know representative of a minority group. I'm a German Jew. And in the German context, especially when I was growing up, uh, that made me very much the kind of representative of uh, one of the most uh, uh, salient and historically, for obvious reasons, significant minority groups uh, in Germany. And I was often treated uh, you know, in complicated ways, right? I was treated to some extent with anti-Semitism, but also, which I didn't find any better, with forms of sort of creepy philo-Semitism, of people trying to prove to me how sorry they were for their past um, and treating me especially well as a sort of signal of that uh, in ways that actually made me feel even more like I was never going to be a true equal. Um, and so I have both of those perspectives. I have a perspective of somebody who's considered white in the United States and part of a majority group and part of a group that uh, sort of uh, should atone for historical crimes. Um, and I also, as a member of a salient minority group, but of Jews in Germany, who sort of have to be apologized to for historical crimes. Um, uh, and, and I really think that the sets of rules and the sets of principles that are going to work are ones in which uh, uh, we are upfront about the injustices of the past. We are upfront about all of those things. Um, but we're able to treat each other uh, without too much nervousness uh, as real equals. Um, and if we fail at that, 
uh, it'll actually uh, deepen uh, the divides. This is a little bit of, it's not directly related to the question, but it's sort of, I, I started to think about it as we were speaking. Um, you know, uh, Robin D'Angelo is a best-selling author now, um, uh, you know, and I really think that her particular brand of what she calls anti-racism is, is very confused and is very damaging. Uh, and it's precisely the fact that I have both of these perspectives uh, which makes me think that. Uh, one of the things that Robin D'Angelo has said is that in a friendship, uh, uh, when uh, you know a white person and non-white person speak and the white person interrupts the non-white person, uh, they are bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear uh, on that person of color in order to silence them, uh, uh, irrespective of context. Now, look, there can be overbearing people who use you know, their social status to shut other people up. I, I get what it's getting at. But the way she puts this makes me think that she's never had a real friendship with somebody who isn't white. Because part of every friendship is that they sometimes interrupt each other. Part of every discussion and debate is that they sometimes say, well, you know, and, and you jump in and so on. And that is part of what it is to actually relate to each other as equals. And so one of the things that I take from my experience of being treated as the representative of victims, but then also coming to a society where I sort of am part of a majority group, is the recognition that that's not a good basis uh, for us to to truly coexist as fellow citizens. Robin D'Angelo isn't here to put her point of view, but uh, there are those who might talk about power politics and so on. But just to build on that, then in, in the book, you, you know, you talk about metaphors like the melting pot, the salad bowl that you know they were supposed to be these metaphors for for diverse societies, but but they didn't work. We are still very, we, we're as divided as we are occasionally united. What, what's a better way of thinking about it then? Well, in terms of a metaphor, um, uh, what I argue is that both of these metaphors are sort of confused. So, uh, you know, the melting pot actually comes from a play which is very moving. Um, uh, you know, people sort of uh, make fun of a melting pot as a metaphor, uh, and we often mention this play, but it's very clear from the literature that most people haven't read the play. And so I went back to read the play, and it's actually a very moving story of uh, two immigrants, and, and, and it turns out that basically the father of one of them uh, is responsible for the murder of the family of the other, and they're, they're engaged, and they break off the engagement. But in the end, as a kind of act of moral heroism, they manage to overcome those differences and to say, we're going to forge the the new American and will leave those conflicts of the old world behind uh, and and build a life together despite, you know, this very personal story of amnesty uh, between our groups in the past. So it can be an inspiring vision, but it also implies too much homogeneity. It implies in the way that it's often been used uh, a society in which our differences disappear and which precisely that groupishness that Richard had talked about earlier uh, goes away so much uh, that we're asking people to completely give up their identities. And that, I think, is a big mistake. Now, in this place, people have often put this idea of a salad bowl, or sometimes they're talking about the mosaic. And I think that's also a mistake. Lord Parrick in the UK has talked about society being an association of associations. Um, but I think that this uh, uh, underplays the extent to which we want to have some amount of commonality. Um, the danger that society will face if there's no connective tissue between uh, people of, of different identity uh, groups. The importance of individuals to, to have a freedom to leave their groups, if that's what they want to choose. And so I'm critical, for example, of uh, things like state-sponsored faith schools. I think it's fine to have private schools that are privately funded in which people 
uh, uh, you know, have faith schools. That's something that, that, that we need to allow. But for the state to come in and say, we're going to encourage uh, Christians to stay among themselves and Jews to stay among themselves and Muslims to stay among themselves. I think that's a really big mistake uh, for how our society is run. And so that's why I'm trying to put into place this metaphor of a public park. Why the public park? Because in a park, you know, literally you and I after this, if we were in the same city, which sadly we're not, we could go to one of the beautiful uh, heaps or parks in London uh, and hang out with ourselves. And we don't want to talk to anybody else. We just want to stay among ourselves. And that's a right we have. But we might also start to chat with people who are sitting next to us uh, and get into new conversations, make new friendships. And in our society, uh, it's similar. We have a right to stay within our own group. Um, and that's perfectly fine. That's legitimate. But we also, as a society, should hope that enough people venture out, make those friendships, make those connections between their own group so that we have real connective tissues. So we don't feel like we have these parallel societies that are passing like ships in the night. And that, to me, is a more helpful metaphor of a kind of society that we should be building. And that I think to an extent, not perfectly, not fully, but to a to a significant extent, we are succeeding in building. Another question uh, that's come up from the audience is social media a help or a hindrance in making society truly inclusive? We've had a lot of discussion about public squares and so on this week. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, look, it's a help in certain kinds of ways. It certainly has enriched our conversations, allowed a lot of people who are excluded from mainstream discourse to make their voices heard, and all of that is a very good thing. Of course, it is also a hindrance in other ways because it allows... Uh, lies to spread and hatred to spread and some of the people who really want to destroy our diverse democracies uh, to, to, to win political power. Um, so, so it's a little bit of both. Um, uh, what I do think is important is that we find ways of dealing with the challenges of social media without giving up on some of our fundamental principles. And whether we want it or not, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram and to name the platform we've all been talking about for the last few days, Twitter, uh, are part of the public square. I don't like the fact that the public square is now essentially owned by a bunch of private companies or by 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 a few billionaires, but they are the place where some of the most important uh, public and political debates happen. And that, I think, makes it really important uh, that everybody have access to them. And I'm a little surprised, I think of myself as being on the liberal left, I'm a little surprised by the naivety of some of my left-wing friends who think that strong forms of content moderation and of censorship uh, are always going to go in the favor, that the right people are always going to be in charge. Um, the fundamental reason for freedom of speech is that you don't want to trust whichever institution, whichever individual, whichever committee makes decisions on what can be said or not to be said to make the right altruistic decisions for you. There's lots of things that people say that I wish were never part of a public sphere, but I wish they never had the right to say. But I'm never going to be in favor of some committee making those decisions because I don't trust them to shut up the right people and to let the right people speak. And so I actually, um, even while it's unfashionable, a strong advocate, despite the risks of this, despite some of the drawbacks of, uh, uh, of real free speech, uh, including very, very limited content moderation uh, on social media. And obviously there are different rules depending on where you are in the world, which is going to be another thing that uh, much of this comes up against. But another question that, that links very nicely to that, uh, someone asks, I do care about everyone in the world equally. If I had to choose who to favour, it would be the neediest. Is that unusual? Perhaps the groupies are disproportionately noisy. And it's that last part. I mean, that's one of the flaws with social media. 
is it a, a place for real discourse, isn't it, that, that, that those who shout loudest who get heard? And is that, in a sense, a, a rather important part of this conversation we're having, that we met, it's not necessarily the groups that need to be heard, that should be heard, are heard, just the ones that shout the loudest? Well, you know, uh, Tom Nero is, is one of my favourite comedians, and, and he had this wonderful line in the introduction to one of his songs, where he says, you know, it's very important to love your fellow human beings. And there are some people in the world who do not love their fellow human beings. And I hate people like that. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it expresses nicely uh, uh, the ever-present temptation uh, of groupishness, sometimes when we don't notice it. And one form of groupishness can be, I am somebody who cares about Arabic in the world. What's wrong with those people who don't? Um, so, so look, uh, you know, I've lived in many different countries. I've, I've, I've traveled widely. Um, at some philosophical level, I care equally about everybody in the world. And I certainly am in favor of, uh, more foreign aid where that can be sensibly spent and, 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 you know, I donate some of my money and all of those kinds of things. Um, but you know, if there's a terror attack, if there's uh, a terrible natural disaster in a place that I know, but I've been to. Um, uh, you know, where I can picture the scene. I'm just moved in a different way than when it's in a country I've never been to. Um, and I don't think that's unusual. I think that that is how most people work. And so the question is, how do we recognize that without becoming complacent? There's not supposed to be an excuse not to care if something happens far away or in a country you've never been to. Um, but I think when we're thinking about how to set up our societies, uh, that is an insight that we need to... Uh, take seriously and start with as a basis. And one of the um, uh, uh, responses to that is not to try and put those different identities in conflict with each other. I think if you say, to be a good person, you have to care about everybody equally. And that means that you're bad if you love your country or think it's important to you to be British. And you're bad if you uh, love your religion or you love your ethnic groups. And you're bad if you um, uh, have pride in your town and your family. You're going to lose most people. But we tell people, hey, it's great that you love your family and it's great that you have a connection to your religious community and it's great that you are proud to be British. But also you should care about people beyond that. Also you should have that kind of solidarity you know, beyond that. Also you should keep expanding that circle of human sympathy. That I think is much, much more likely uh, to be successful in motivating people. Uh, this question in a way... Um... I'll ask the question rather than try and analyse it. Uh, sh should immigrants be expected to assimilate into mainstream society? And is that an answer, arguably, to, to what you're describing, assimilation? Yeah, so look, I don't know, uh, you know, all of these terms are so fraught, assimilating, integrating, it always depends on how people define it and mainstream so on. Mainstream society. Um, but but let, me, let me tell you this. Um, uh, you know, on the right of a political spectrum, there's all of these fears that immigrants aren't learning the language and that uh, therefore they're not interested in integrating or perhaps they're not capable of integrating. Um, and then sometimes on the left, we now hear, well, they shouldn't, right? We, it doesn't matter if Britain won't have a common language anymore. Um, it doesn't matter if America won't have a common language anymore. It's fine if in 50 years, you know, some Americans will speak English and some will speak Chinese and some will speak Spanish. Um, the truth of the matter is that these fears uh, or perhaps these aspirations from the left are just empirically misplaced. There's a really strong sociological model which works extremely well across different contexts. It's incredibly predictive. Uh, it's true in my family. It's true in the families of most friends I've spoken to. Uh, so this is how it works. In the first generation, 
many immigrants uh, don't fully learn the language, especially if they didn't have much educational opportunity in the country they came from, especially when they're not that young when they arrive in the country. They might spend 40, 50 years in a country and, and only learn the country to a limited extent. Their children are going to be uh, very competent and in most cases fluent in both languages, but in, in a clear majority of them prefers the language of their new country, prefers English if they're in Britain and the United States. So when they were their siblings, when they were their cousins, when they were friends who have a similar uh, background of migration, they will choose to speak English, even though they competently can speak whatever it may be, Hindi or Bengali or Chinese or Spanish, right? Um, by the generation of the grandchildren, of the third generation, only about 1% of people still speak the language of origin. Now, that's a mixed thing. It would be wonderful if they continue to speak the language to a large extent. Yeah. But it shows the power of that integrating instinct in, in the United States, in Britain, in France, and Germany as well, by the way, in all of these societies. And so I, what I will say is, uh, you know, yes, I think if you're not understanding integration or assimilation as giving up everything about your home culture, if you're not understanding it as you have to become indistinguishable, we have to pretend that these differences don't exist. If you're understanding it as uh, loving your new country, having a real emotional connection to it, having lots of friends who come from different groups, speaking the language uh, fluently and comfortable, and also continuing to have some pride in the country you might be from and the cultural heritage you might be from. But I think that's a very good thing, and I think it's happening. We're almost out of time. I'm, in the last minute or so, I'm going to give you the opportunity. What's the one single biggest thing that you think would make for an inclusive society? What would you what would you say is the most important factor? Well, I think it's to recognize the dangers that we face, it's to recognize that groupishness can always lead to deep conflict, um, to war, uh, it's to take very seriously the stakes of where we're at. But it's also to push a to push a little bit against this fashionable pessimism, to recognize that when you start with a realistic appraisal of how difficult it is to build these diverse democracies, that can ironically, paradoxically, make you much more optimistic uh, about the current state uh, and about the future. We've made real progress over the last decades. I mean, think back in a serious way to what Britain looked like 100 or 50 or even 25 years ago, and you will see that uh, there has been real progress. Um, and our task now is to build on that progress, to build a vision of diverse societies uh, that most of us, whatever group we might be a part of, would actually be excited to live in. Well, it's a very optimistic thought, especially in a world where we talk about polarisation a lot. Yasha Monk, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much to all of you that are listening and watching. Thanks also to Intelligence Squared.